0: weeks ago there was a uh, an article in a local newspaper that in honor of valentine's day had paid tribute to three couples who had been married a combined 207 years in the article the couple shared the secrets their secrets on love and marriage and this is the title it said decades don't dim devotion says he proposed to her on april fool's day in 1925 but obviously it was no joke Seventy years later, Harold and Irene Wallace of Seal Beach, California are still going strong and happy to share their secrets on love and marriage. Quote, I treat my husband like a dog, said Irene, age 90. I pet him often, I feed him well, and I have him on a long leash. None of of the seniors implied bliss was easy, but their formula for success was remarkably similar and simple. Talk about your problems. Don't go to bed angry. Understand it's possible to disagree without arguing. Consideration for each other, respect, friendship, that leads to love, says Max Leiter, 89 years old. He and his wife Elizabeth had been married for 68 years. The third couple, Everett and Iva Belknap of Bellflower, were married in 1926, They've lived through the Great Depression, two world wars, and more, and Iva had some advice for modern couples who believe that seven years of marriage, let alone seven decades, is an accomplishment. She says, you think you'll find somebody else, but everybody's got the same problems. Because they were married the longest... uh, Okay. Um, Harold, a retired gas company dispatcher, said he wasn't sure how he kept his marriage together so long, but his wife, Irene, had another theory. She said... He was smart. He has kept his mouth shut. <laughs> hey, you've got to learn from that practical wisdom. You know, I mean, the, you know, what, you stop thinking, I mean, what is the secret of a long and, and happy and healthy marriage? And, and I think that that's where we run into a problem. We come together and we want one secret. You know, just give me a secret, just give me one thing that I can work on. And the problem is that one thing isn't going to do the trick and it's like what's the secret to making your car run better you know it's not one thing I mean, there's many things combined together that make for an efficient automobile engine to run smoothly and it's the same thing with our marriage I mean if you think about the series that we've gone through I mean there are many different things that we've shared throughout these past several weeks and uh, what I want to do is I wanna, this is kind of an overview since it's our final session and by the way the reason that it's our final session enough men have finally come together came up with enough cash, came to me in the shadows of the evening during the week, and said, listen man, we're tired. We've had way too much homework, and we need to move on to something else. So that could be one of the reasons that it's over, or it could be just that I'm tired too. (laughs) 15 ways to revive your marriage. It's a 15 point kind of a, uh, maybe a, a marital maintenance checkup if you, if you will or better yet maybe it's a 15 point preventive maintenance program. And so it's basically what I'm going to do is try to give you an overview for those of you who have just been here the last couple of weeks you get 20 weeks worth of stuff all at once. So get ready. Open a wide because I'm going to jam it down your throat. But 15 ways to revive your marriage. It's a, it's a uh, preventive maintenance program. Now, I want you to do as you go through this is kind of grade yourself. See how you're doing. It would be a great thing to discuss, to communicate, to, to, uh, to go over together as a couple. You know, how are we doing on this one? We're not doing very well. How are we doing on this one? No, we need to do something on this one. You know, whatever. But just kind of go through and look at it uh, and see which ones you're doing well on, see which ones need some improvement. But we'll just go through them. Fifteen-point maintenance program. You ready? Number one, recognize the importance of God's love. If you want to have a long and healthy and and, uh, intimate marriage, if you want to avoid many of the problems that many people have in our culture, we need to recognize the importance of God's love. In every wedding that I am uh, privileged to officiate at, I share this one particular passage. Because, you know, you stop and think about it, we're all looking for some sense of guarantee. You know, you do a wedding and you stand there and you can't help but think that, you know what, 50% of marriages in our country end in divorce. And while it's such a wonderful celebration and you stand there and you're excited all about it, but the reality of it is, is seeing people after that day and, and beyond that day, you realize how difficult sometimes marriage can be. And you see the struggle that we all go through, those who are married, and you begin to realize that, you know what, some of that celebration is dampened just a little bit because you know what's in store, what the road it lies ahead for these people. And yet we need to recognize the importance of God's love. If you want a guarantee on how you can have an intimate relationship, if you want to have a guarantee on how your marriage will not fail, then recognize the importance of God's love. In 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 and 8, we read this. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. And everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. It's important as we look at this to recognize the fact that God sets the standard for how we're to love one another. The Bible says that if we know God, then we will have the capacity to love one another. But those who do not know God don't have the capacity to love as God loves. And God sets the standard. Ephesians 5, for example, says this, that husbands are to love their wives, what? As Christ loved the church. Well, if we don't understand how God loves us and we don't understand what he's done for us, then it's impossible for me to, to duplicate that in my life when I'm, when I'm to love my wife. If I'm to love my wife as Christ loves the church, I need to understand how he loved the church. And so as we go through this, we begin to recognize that there's some truth as far as God's love is concerned that we all need to understand. It says that those who, love, those who do not love don't know God, for God is love if you want to have a successful marriage it all starts at this point and that's simply this we have to come to individually a personal knowledge of the God who made us if you don't know God you cannot love because God is love and without the knowledge of who God is and without experiencing him then you cannot love as God loves it's as simple as that see and some of us have heard of God and let me give you an illustration of this see what, what God is saying here is that you know we need to know God in an intimate relationship type of manner some of us know God in our head we've heard of God in our society we've heard of God in our culture you know we believe that maybe there's a God that's somewhere or whatever but many of us don't understand how to know him personally I know that was very confusing for me at a certain time in my life not long ago when someone said you know do you know God well sure I've heard of God everybody's heard of God no do you know God and it's something different it was illustrated to me very very well one day I had a friend who used to be a, a professional athlete. He, he was a football player in Atlanta, Georgia, and, and we became friends. And he was out here uh, to do some deal. And anyway, we were spending the day together. And we drove to a construction site that we were doing the air conditioning on this particular project. And so we got there, and, and he wanted to ride with me to kill some time before his meeting. So we went to the job, and we were walking to the job, and, and, the, and uh, one of the uh, developers, one of the owners of the project, came over and was talking to me. And I introduced my friend. I said, this is so-and-so. And, and the guy goes, oh, so-and-so. And I, and he goes, you know, I have, I have a friend by the same name, coincidentally. And uh, he used to be a, a quarterback for the Atlanta Falcons. And we kind of stood there and looked at each other. And he looked at me, and he kind of winked. And I looked back at the guy who was telling me that this guy was a friend of his. And he was standing right in front of him. And it came, you know, for me to realize that, you know what, see, there's a a knowledge that you can have in your head and there's also an intimate knowledge that you can have as far as a relationship is concerned. Where he said that he knew him and was a friend of his, I could say not only do I know him, but I know him as a friend. We have a relationship together. And it's interesting how many of us say, oh yeah, I know God, but you don't know God because you don't have a relationship with God. You don't know anything about God. You don't know what he's done for you. And so, as we begin to understand the importance of God's love, we need to recognize you've got to come into a relationship with Him. He said, Well, how do you do that? Well, you do that simply by believing in Jesus Christ. The Bible says if you receive Christ, which means if you believe in Him, that you believe what God said about Him, that God sent His only begotten Son into this world, that whoever would believe in Him would not perish and have everlasting life, that God sent Christ to develop a relationship with us as human beings with the God who made us. It says if we receive him and believe in him, what? We become a child of God to those who believe in his name. Romans 8 says that once you become a child of God, that God then becomes your father. That you know him, Abba, Daddy. You know him intimately and personally. You have a relationship with him that's based simply on the fact that you believe what God says about Christ. That he sent him into this world to die for your sin. And if you believe that and you accept that, you become a child of God. You know God intimately, and you have a relationship with him that goes beyond a head knowledge now. You've experienced him in your life. So the, the, uh, the uh, patriarch Job said this about God. He said, you know, God, I've heard about you for years, but now for the first time in my life, I have seen you face to face. I have heard about you, but now I know who you are. And see, many of us need to enter into that relationship first with God because when you trust in Him and God then forgives you of your sin, He sends His Spirit to live within you. You become a child of God. And what happens at that point is you have the capacity to love as God loves. Let me give you an example. If you've got your Bibles, look at 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And some of you are sitting here thinking, this guy's going to do 15 points. There's no possible way. <laughs> But I'm going to, trust me. We may be here all day, but I'm going to give you 15 points. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, it's critical to understand this because nothing else that I say from this point on makes any sense at all unless you've entered that relationship with God, unless you've got to the point where you say, you know what, it doesn't matter what somebody else thinks, it doesn't matter what I've been told, I need to know you personally. I've never made that decision, but I'm going to do that. I need to do that because when God forgives you of your sin when he sends his spirit to live within you this is what it says first corinthians 13 look at verse 4 says the and what's important in the original text is that the definite article the precedes love so really it reads this way the love what love the love of god the love of god is patient the love of god is kind patient now think about this our natural response with other people is what to get impatient you drive me nuts. You and drive me crazy. I don't understand you. What makes you th- How do you think? You know, my first response in marriage is oftentimes to become impatient. Why can't you see it? It should be done this way. Why can't you do it my way? Why do you have to have it your way? And we become impatient with one another. But see the word here that love god's love is patient it means that god toward people and this is a wonderful truth about god's love listen to how important this is god toward people it takes them a long time to boil that's what the word means that god the love of god is patient god patiently For years and years and years, I look back in my life and what I've learned is for years and years and years, while I was doing everything in the world against what God said was right, he patiently, 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 patiently put up with all of that until he sent somebody in my life that explained what I just explained to you, that you need to know God personally. God's love is patient. While we get frustrated with one another, God's patient. Now he's saying, if you've come to know me, and, and my spirit lives within you, you've got the same capacity now to be patient toward other people. And that's one of the things that blew me away. When I accepted Christ and believed in him for the first time, and according to the Bible, became a child of God, my life changed. Old things passed away, new things came into my life. It was like amazing. Where I was so impatient, and I would yell and swear and just jump all over people. I mean, and, 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 and it was like, all of a sudden, what's the big deal? And you start looking like, who am I? What's happened to me? Other people around you start asking that. What's happened to him? He got religion. <laughs> oh, I got that religion, did he? Yeah, he got religion. You know, and, and it's kind of like, oh, I got that religion. But, um, and he goes on, but, but he says that, you know, love is patient. God's love is kind. What? It's useful. It's, it's, it's right for the other person. Uh, the word actually means it's tasty or healthy. God's love is healthy toward other people. And these are the things that it's not. It doesn't seek its own, it's not selfish, it's not me, 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 my, my, my. Think of all the problems we have in marriage because i got to have it my way. Can't you see that my way is the right way? Me, me, me. God's love isn't like that at all. It, It doesn't seek its own. It's not provoked. It doesn't easily get ticked off. It doesn't jump to conclusions. God's love isn't provoked. It doesn't take into account a wrong suffered. God's love is able to forgive people. It doesn't store these things in our memory. It doesn't seek vengeance. It doesn't say, hey, you know what? You hurt me, one day I'm going to hurt you back. God's love doesn't do that. It says it doesn't rejoice in unrighteousness, but it rejoices in truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. And here's the kicker. God's love will never fail. See, God's love will never fail. My love will always fail. Unless my love is God's love, it's going to fail because it's based on too many different things. It's based on circumstances, based on feelings, based on whatever's going on. But God's love isn't based on any of those things. See, we need to recognize the importance of God's love because for those who know God, we now know how God loves. How does he love? He loves me unconditionally. How does he love? He loves me sacrificially. How does he love? He loves me patiently. He loves me kindly. He says gracious things and does gracious things even when I don't deserve it. How does God love me? He doesn't take into account the things that I do wrong. He doesn't store up a list so he can get even with me. But he wipes that slate clean and he forgives me and we start out fresh every day as we confess our sins. He's faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all of our unrighteousness. See, God's love doesn't take into account that which is wrong. It doesn't store up anger and animosity. And it's important that we recognize all these things. It's you know, The bottom line of life is this, and I'm, I'm learning as I go how true this really is. It's not what you know, but it's who you know. And let me tell you something. It's not what you know about God. It's not all the head knowledge you can get from going to church and doing all the things that people tell you to do. But what makes you right with God is it's who you know. It's not what you know, it's who you know. And that's what's going to get you forgiveness. That's what's going to get you forgiveness of sin. And that's, when it get, and that's what also is going to get you into heaven. See, and it's important to understand that. We need to know God because He is love. And those who know God can love as God loves. Number two, and it goes hand in hand with what we just talked about, and that is that we need to rely upon the Holy Spirit. Rely upon the Holy Spirit. So in Galatians 5.16 it says this, So I say live by the Spirit, and guess what? You will not carry out the desires of the flesh or the sinful nature. Now this is possible only if you've come to know Christ. If you've asked God to forgive you of your sins and you believe that Jesus Christ died for you, the Bible says that he sends his spirit to live and reside within you, that your body becomes a temple, Paul says, of the Holy Spirit, that he lives within you. John 16 says that the spirit of God lives within us and convicts us of sin, righteousness and judgment so we now know the difference between right or wrong. Galatians 5 says that the fruit of the spirit is love, peace, patience, kindness, the things that we just talked about and see the Spirit of God now lives within me and He gives me not only the knowledge to do what is right but also the strength to do what is right. And He says if you live by the Spirit you won't carry out the desires of the flesh. Now the point is this because you've asked Christ into your life does that mean you're always going to do the right thing? Absolutely not. What it means is that you're forgiven of your sin, that you're given eternal life, that you'll spend eternity with God, Jesus said, if I go to prepare a place for you, I'm coming back and I'm going to take you with me. So so, so all of that is guaranteed. But the problem that we have on a day-to-day basis is it doesn't mean that I'm going to do the right thing. i got a choice. Two choices. You can do things God's way, or you can still do things your way. That's the choice that we all have for the rest of our lives, whether you've asked Christ into your life or not. The reality of that is, is there's a constant struggle that goes on marriage is no different than every other decision that you make in life am I gonna do this God's way or am I gonna do it my way and what God says in, in, the, in biblical language is this are you gonna walk by the spirit which is God's way of doing things or are you gonna walk by the flesh which is your own way of doing things Proverbs 14 12 says what there's a way that seems right to man that's my way but its end always is destruction versus God's way which may not even seem right to man but if you do it it always ends up right So oftentimes, when you trust in Christ, I will guarantee if there's someone here today that has never asked Christ into their life and do that today, you will not be miraculously healed and cured of all your old bad habits. You'll be forgiven of your sins, you'll have eternal life, you'll be guaranteed a place in heaven, but it doesn't mean you're going to change instantly, though now the Spirit of God will live in you and begin to help you to see things that need to be dealt with in your life. You're not going to change old habits. Don't die overnight. It would be wonderful if every man who became a Christian or woman became a Christian, all of a sudden everything changed in their life, and they were looking for a new way to live. It doesn't work that way. You still have a choice. And the choice is either going to be do God's way or your way. So we need to rely upon the Spirit of God in every decision that we make. When, When I'm thinking about, you know, how do I deal with my wife? How do I deal with my children? How do I deal with friends? How do I make certain business decisions? It all becomes a matter of God. I don't know how to do this. Give me wisdom. Show me the right way. And then, when he can, and then when the Spirit of God who lives within you says, this is the right way to do it. This is what God's Word says. This is the way you're supposed to do it. Now you have a choice. Are you going to rely upon the Spirit of God and the way that He's leading you? Or are you going to continue to do things your way? It's still your option. What I'm saying is, start to rely upon the Spirit of God as He leads you in your life to do things the way God says they need to be done. And if you rely upon Him and do things His way, you won't carry out the desires of your flesh. You won't do things the way you used to do things. Number three, we need to rebuild our relationships with Christ as the head of our households. What that means in simple simple terms in Psalm 127.1 is this, unless the Lord builds the house, its its builders labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchmen stand, stand guard in vain. Unless the Lord builds the house, its laborers its build their city in vain. One of the most difficult things, and I can't emphasize this enough, too many marriages are destroyed over a struggle or a battle for who will gain control. In Genesis chapter 3, a product of the curse or the original sin of man when Adam and Eve sinned before God, God said this to Eve He says, Your desire will be for your husband and it's not to desire him as your husband it's not to have a a physical or emotional desire for him what he's talking about is your struggle will be that you want to take control that'll be your struggle and every marriage goes through that struggle who's in charge who's in control and it's a control issue and so we've got husbands who are trying to control and manipulate their wives, we've got wives who try and control and manipulate their, their husbands, you've got children who try and control and manipulate their parents. And you've got this constant struggle and battle, and that's it, and just the way that it is. And we need to recognize something here, we need to rebuild our relationships with Christ as the head of our family, which means simply this, that God comes first, and if you're married, the husband is responsible and accountable to God for his family and his household, the wife is, is, is responsible to her husband there's mutual submission that takes place between the two and children fall underneath that where they're responsible and accountable to the parents children obey your parents and the Lord for this is right and it's a problem it's the first command with a promise and that is that you'd live a long and happy life and so the structure is basically simple. The husband, the husband is submissive to God. The, the wife is submissive to her husband. And the husband is mutually submissive to his wife. And then the children fall and they're submissive to parents. The struggle that we have is there's always a battle for who's going to be in control. What I'm saying is this. When you put Christ in the center of your home, And you say as a man, I may be responsible for my family, I may be the husband, I may be the father, and I understand that responsibility, but you know what, I'm accountable to God for all the decisions that we make. Everything's got to be done God's way. When you've got a wife who says, you know what, Lord, I'm responsible and I'm accountable as a wife and a mother, and yet I need to do things your way, I'm accountable to you, God, first and foremost, and then to my husband after that and I need to understand something as long as my husband isn't asking me to do anything that conflicts with the Word of God then I'm gonna be obedient and submissive to him and recognize his leadership and support him in it and the same with children that say God I'm responsible to you first and then I'm responsible to my parents as long as my parents don't tell me to do something that's wrong before God then I will respect them and I will obey them because it's a sacrifice to God first and foremost See, what, what, what's happening here is that God comes first, and then all of you as individuals who are submissive to God are all drawn together because of your, your, your trust in the Lord. And you are miraculously somehow drawn together because we put God first in our relationships with one another. If God comes first, my wife will always be happy with what I do in our marriage and our family, because God will never have me do anything that would violate our relationship together. If God comes first as a wife, your husband will always be satisfied and content with the relationship that you have together. Why? Because you're going to be submissive to the Word of God, and you're going to do what God tells you to do. same thing with our children, the same thing with our friends, the same thing with business and everything else. God, if we put God first, then we'll never have a problem. Number four, we need to remember what the Bible teaches about marriage and commitment. Genesis 2.24 says this, for this reason, speaking of marriage, a man will leave his father and his mother and will cleave to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. It's critical to understand that God says the purpose of marriage is permanent companionship. Permanent companionship. So many of us think, well, it's, you know, like, like the lady said, eh, seven years. Man, we've been together seven years. That's a long time to be together. I've only, I only held jobs for three years at a time you know we got this idea of commitment that it's like you know well whatever but God's saying that marriage was designed by God to give permanent companionship for a lifetime that the two would cleave together be united they would become one flesh there's a sense of permanence that's involved and also that we would complement one another God made us male and female we are different from each other we know that we understand it but many times we're frustrated by the differences what I would suggest that you do is recognize what the Bible, or remember what the Bible teaches about marriage and commitment, and that is these differences are good. Stop fighting the differences all the time and get to a point where you begin to enjoy the differences, realizing if you have to, laugh about it, because sometimes I get to the point where it's hilarious. You know, My wife and I are so different, it could drive me crazy, and maybe that's why I'm laughing about it. I'm you know on the edge of going nuts. But... Uh, <laughs> But, you know, it, 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 you, just, you have to laugh about it. Because it's like 20-some years later, we're still married and we're still different and I'm still laughing about it. Now, she doesn't have the same sense of humor that I do. But if we can just get her to laugh a little more about these differences, we'll be a lot better off. So there you go. But, but, but I mean, that's enjoy the differences. They're part of God's plan. Number five, refuse to listen to non-biblical solutions when you go through problems in your life. It never ceases to amaze me how often, when we turn to friends and co workers and relatives and books and talk shows and tapes and magazines, we get some of the most stupid, harmful, and destructive advice. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of scoffers or mockers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on God's law, he meditates day and night, and he's like a tree that's planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in season, and his leaf does not wither, and whatever he does, he prospers. Psalm 1, 1 through 3. What a great counsel that is. There is safety in a multitude of counselors as long as the counselors are rooted in the word of God. Otherwise, it is a tragedy. There's a lot of bad advice being given to people who are having problems in their marriages. I mean, there's a lot of nonsense out there. And there are people that are paying 150 bucks an hour to listen to this garbage. I mean, it is stupid, it's foolish, and, and even more so than that, it's destructive. And all that I would say is that we need to get honed in on the Word of God because it's on the Word of God that He delights and it's on the Word of God that he meditates day and night and it's the Word of God that'll never fail us it's the Word of God that when we're rooted in it and we understand it will become rooted deeply like this tree that he's talking about which is near water and has deep roots and it's not going to be blown over by stuff that comes up in our marriages. Every marriage is going to go through a stormy season but if you're rooted deep and you're planted deep and you understand what right and wrong is and you know the Word of God you're going to be able to withstand that. So we need to refuse to listen to non-biblical solutions, and we need to be able to accurately handle the Word of God. His delight is what? His delight is in the law of God. Why is it so delightful? Because God will never let you down. Why is it so delightful? Gentlemen, it's free! Think about that. It ain't 150 bucks an hour. It is free! Now, every guy that I know should be shouting amen to that. Thank you. It's free. And you have access to it. It's right there in this book. Hidden somewhere in your house. Just find the book. Open it up. And read it. And study it. And memorize it and meditate on it and then live it doesn't get any easier than that did I say it was free? alright, all right, all, right, all, right. all right. number six number six, you want a healthy, happy, intimate marriage, resolve outstanding conflicts Proverbs seventeen fourteen. I like this, starting a quarrel is like breaching a dam I like another proverb that says, you know what, any idiot can start a quarrel doesn't take a whole lot of skill to start a fight in your marriage, does it? Oh man, you've been cooking all day, honey? Wow, I had a huge lunch. I'm not hungry. Hey, hey, hey. There's a brilliant statement. Oh man, I'll tell you what, you better eat, you better eat and say, man, that's good stuff. And then you go and die and lay out in the garage somewhere. <laughs> but you know what I mean? I mean, any idiot can start a fight in their marriage. Starting with quarrels like breaching a dam. So don't, you know, drop the matter before a dispute breaks out. You know, it comes to a point in time where we need to learn to, to uh, recognize what's important and not important. I, you know, sometimes I think, is it really that important? Ah, I'm not going there. What was I gonna say? What did, what did you ask me to say? Um, uh, what are some things that drive you crazy in your marriage? Anybody, any guy wanna volunteer? Any, any, <laughs> I didn't think so. You learned your lesson three weeks ago as a wise gentleman but you know he gets a point say is this really that important I mean is this that important we need to resolve outstanding conflicts but we need to learn to disagree without being disagreeable we learn to be be able to communicate these uh, things that we disagree on and not take it personal and get defensive about it we need to be able to share with one another without going crazy because we're afraid to say something because who knows all hell's going to break loose if we bring this one up See, that, that's not good. That's not going to develop intimacy in a relationship. We need to recognize how important it is to resolve outstanding conflicts, but we also need to pick and choose our battles. So what I would say in very simple terms is this. Think before you speak. And before you speak, think again. Right? I mean, Think before you speak. And before you speak, think again. That'll go a long way in your relationship. Okay, number seven, here we go. Number seven, repent. Oh, that's a good one. Repent when appropriate. For some of you, this is a very foreign concept. Let me explain it to you this way. When you're wrong, admit it. That's pretty simple. Oh, but man, it's so hard to do. The hardest thing, and mostly it's it's men that are pretty stubborn in this area. Though I know a few women that are a little stubborn in this area? So I've heard. Proverbs 28, 13, He who conceals his sins does not prosper, but whoever confesses and renounces them will find mercy. If you're wrong, admit it. The most healing words ever spoken in a marriage or any relationship is this. Honey, I was wrong. I'm sorry. Will you forgive me? And then what really works good is when you hear, Yes. that that helps a lot (laughs) kind of you know completes the whole process but think about this again and you know and this is why it's important that you know god that you have a relationship with god that you have the spirit of god living within you because the bottom line is this listen to this it says uh, in in ephesians 4 uh, 31 let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you all malice and be what and be kind there it goes again god's love is kind And be kind and tender-hearted. What? Tender-hearted as opposed to what? Hard-headed? Forgiving each other just as God in Christ has forgiven you. You see why it's important to realize how God has forgiven us? Because our standard for forgiving one another is based on God's forgiveness of us. Forgiving one another just as God in Christ has forgiven you. That's our standard of forgiveness to one another it's so important to understand that when we do not forgive one another it not only harms the person that we will not forgive but in any, many ways it harms ourselves. one of my, one of my I, I think one of my favorite stories is a story about and it's supposedly a true story and it took place uh, during the Korean War there were some military GIs that were living off off base and they had hired a Korean houseboy to do their work for them, some cooking, cleaning, things of that nature And these guys like to play practical jokes on this guy. And so one day he got up, the Korean uh, gentleman that they had hired to work, this Korean houseboy got up and he was going to go cook and he he slipped his slippers on and he went to walk and he couldn't move because they had nailed his slippers to the floor. So he didn't say anything about it and he just went on and he was doing his work and the next thing you know he went to bed that night and he went and jumped in bed and put his hand under the pillow and it was filled with shaving cream and he had shaving cream all over the place. And so he didn't say anything, he continued to do his work, and then another day goes by, and he jumps in bed, and it's short-sheeted, and he jams his legs when he tries to get in, and and he didn't say anything, and he just kept doing his work, and you know, not not too many days later, he opens a door, a bucket of water falls on his head, and I mean, these guys are just being brutal to this poor guy. So finally, they started to feel a little guilty about it, and they said, hey, you know what, Um, we're sorry for everything that we've done, will you forgive us? And this Korean houseboy says to him, okay, uh, no no more shaving cream under pillow? No, no more shaving cream under pillow. Uh, no more short sheet? No more short sheets. No more nail shoes to floor? No more nail shoes to floor. No more bucket water fall on head? No, no more bucket of water fall on your head. He goes, okay, good. Then me no more spitting soup. <laughs> there you go. See, I, I mean, that's what happens sometimes. You know, you think you're getting away with it may not be. Ugh, hey. All right, number eight. Here we go. Number eight. Reestablish what I call good communication. Or Ephesians 4.29. Don't let any unwholesome word or talk come out of your mouth, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs that it may benefit those who listen. Bottom line, good communication. I mean, you put other people first. Don't let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth. You know what, we need to reestablish good communication. Many of us have got into some bad habits in how we talk to each other. We're critical, we're negative, uh, we're condemning, and we need to recognize the fact that, you know what, we need to build the other person up. Stop and think again. Stop and think before you speak. Am I, what I'm about to say, is it going to build my wife up? Is it going to build my husband up? Is it going to build my children up? Or is it going to destroy them? Is it going to tear them apart? And there's a fine line. And see what happens is, and what I've noticed in relationships, if you believe that the person cares about you and is trying to help you and build you up, then that person's going to be willing to listen to you. But if you believe that that person just wants to criticize you and condemn you or to make you feel like you're not living up to a certain expectation, then they're going to have a tendency to shut you down and not want to listen to you. You know, and it's really fascinating how simple this point is, but how many times we fall into this pattern. You know, and I can see that with kids who are athletes or whatever. You know, they can do 15 right things during the course of a game, and they do one wrong thing, and what do you think is discussed? The one wrong thing. And so what happens is they have a tendency they're not going to want to listen anymore. You have to make sure that you smother constructive criticism in the midst of a whole bunch of things that build people up. Then they're going to listen. We need to have words of appreciation, words of affection, uh, words of, uh, that complement one another. Hey, you're doing a good job. Hey, I really appreciate what you've done for me. Hey, you know what, you look nice today. And on and on and on and on and on and it has to go. We need to reestablish good communication. Number nine, we need to respond immediately to our spouse's needs. 1 Corinthians 7, 3 through 5, we went in great detail on every one of these, but it's b- bottom line is this, the husband should fulfill his duty to his wife and likewise the, the wife to her husband. Hey, if your wife has a need, if your husband has a need, whether it's physical, whether it's spiritual, whether it's emotional, whatever it is, listen to me, respond to it. Do something about it. Don't let that need go on and be unmet. Because if you don't meet that need, someone else will come along and meet it. Because if it's real and it needs to be dealt with, then it needs to be dealt with by you. We need to meet one another's needs. And we need to do it immediately, not when we feel like it, not when we'll get around to it, just do it. Resist the temptation, number 10, to have someone else meet your need. Now the problem is this. Many of us, we're going to have a problem where our spouse isn't going to respond to our need as quickly as we'd like. And the problem then is we're going to be tempted to have someone else meet it. We need to, at that point, resist that temptation to have somebody else come into our life to meet that need. Whether it's an emotional need, a physical need, whatever that need is, we need to refuse to have somebody else meet it. And the reason simply is this, because the strategy or the scheme of our enemy, the devil, who is a very real personality according to the Bible, is to destroy lives. And he wants to destroy your family. He wants to destroy your marriage. He wants to destroy your children. He wants to destroy you. He's the great destroyer, is the name that Jesus gave him. He's a destroyer. He's a liar, and he's a murderer from the very beginning. And he's going to lie to you, and he's going to give you bad advice. He's going to whisper bad counsel through the counsel of other people who are not rooted in the Word of God. And we need to be able to discern the difference between the people that come into our life. We need to recognize and resist the temptation to have someone else meet your needs. I had the lyrics of a country western song that, that has some great meaning to it. Let me just read it to you quickly. It says, 12 days out on business with two more nights to go. I'm walking toward the Super 8 with my shoulder to the snow. I settled in the restaurant where I made my first mistake. A dark-eyed girl in the corner, I did more than a double-take. He says, like a page from a drugstore paperback, she fired a lonely, sultry look my way. What could I say? And before I could muster the will to fight, that look had legs that were walking right at me. Have a seat, please. Scrambling for my options with the invitation on, it seems that these decisions don't ever take that long. The unknown arms of danger have a thrill all of their own, but hidden consequences after the seeds of fear are sown. In a New York minute, it was up to me to stay or go. Give me one good reason to leave, or maybe two or three. It's just not about a book in the Bible or a code I want to live by. I've got to go home Sunday morning, and I've got to look my son in the eye. There was something I nearly forgot. I thank God for second thoughts. I'm sorry, ma'am, for coming on. If you'll just excuse me, please. I was only three strides from the door reaching for my keys I felt a strange sensation something reaching for my back and I turned to see something else inside those dark eyes looking back I was making tracks to the parking lot when I realized it must have been a plot to take me from my family he says that it took a simple lesson from Sunday school but my mama and Jesus didn't raise no fool. really that's all it's not just about a book and a Bible or a code I want to live by I'm not some kind of special hero. I've got a wife I want to stand by. And in the Sunday, in the mirror Sunday morning, I've got to look myself in the eye. Wow. But I like what he said. He said, I looked back and there was something different that I saw the second time I looked into her eyes. And I saw an evil plot. I saw a strategy. I saw something that was designed to destroy my life and to take me from my wife and my family. I saw something that I didn't see the first time because all I saw was a beautiful woman and pretty legs, man. But all of a sudden I looked back and I saw things as God saw things. And I saw that it was going to destroy me. We need to recognize how true that really is. We need to discern to see things around us as God sees them. We need to seek His wisdom. God, help me understand. Help me to see what's going on. Because I see it one way, but it can't be right because your spirit's whispering to me, there's danger here. We need to resist the temptation to have someone else meet our needs. Number 11, we need to also rejoice in the wife of our youth. Proverbs 5, 18 and 19 says to rejoice. May your fountain be blessed and may you rejoice in the wife of your youth. A loving doe, a graceful deer, may her breast satisfy you always. May you ever be captivated by her love. It means to rejoice. It means to choose to have joy again. It means to look at your wife as if it was the first time that you saw her. To remember those first days and to rejoice that she said yes when you asked her to marry you. It means to rejoice all over again. It means to choose to have joy. I'm going to do a study in the book of Philippians in two weeks. And the reason for it is that so many of us don't have joy in our life. It's a book of joy and it's a book of choice. So many of us choose to be miserable. And God says we can choose to have joy. How do you want to live your life? I'll tell you what, I'll guarantee you by the end of that series, I'll look out and I'll see a whole bunch of people smiling. Some of you haven't smiled in a long time. And it may hurt at first, but that's all right. Sometimes what's good for us always hurts at first. See, we need to rejoice again. Number 12, we need to renew our vows frequently to one another. Ecclesiastes five four says, When you make a vow to God, don't delay in fulfilling it. He has no pleasures and fools. Go ahead and fulfill your vow. May I make a suggestion to you? Some of you think being married for a lifetime is like a long time. I was talking to Jackie Slater a couple weeks ago. You know, he played for the Los Angeles St. Saint Saint, no, the Cleveland/ slash Saint Los Angeles/ St. Louis Rams. He didn't play for him when they were in Cleveland, though some people think that he did. But, but he played for him for 20 years. 20 years. Said, Jackie, you played for the Rams for 20 years. That had to be like an eternity playing for the Rams. <laughs> anyway, for 20 years. So how in the world did you do that? He goes, Well, I didn't play, I didn't play all 20 of them at once. <laughs> so what are you talking about? Well, I mean, you know, one time I had a three year contract, one time I had a one year contract, one time I had a two year contract, another time I had a three year contract. Before you know it, by the time I was done honoring every one of my contracts, it'd add up to 20. And I like that. See, some of you think being married for, you know, for the rest of our lives is forever. So I got an idea for you. If that seems like a long time, then just, just do it in a succession of one-year contracts. Or at least five years. Think about this. Renew your vows every five years. I think it's a great idea. Five year, ten year fifteen twenty twenty five thirty thirty five and before you know it you 're up to seventy five and people look at you and say, "How in the world do you do that? Easy, you know how I did it. I lived with my wife, I lived with my husband one day at a time i 've run marathons, and the only way you get through a marathon is you have five five mile races because if you stop and you 're thinking on mile two that you've got twenty four more to go it's really it's, it's, it's quite self defeating yeah it really is it's like that's what does that banner say number two number two 24 more and so you just do five five mile races roughly and you can do it you know it's like losing a lot of weight how'd you lose 100 pounds well I lost it one pound at a time good for you see we need to understand that in our marriages too you know what hey one day how 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 many people out here have been married like 30 years raise your hand oh there's some people there how many more than that Alright, ooh, look at that, there's some more people. Now, see, wasn't it easy? Ah, <laughs> <laughs> no, just kidding. It didn't take long, did it? <laughs> no, but seriously, it is, though. Think about it. Now, you know, I look back and say, man, we've married almost 21 years. I mean, that's unbelievable to me. And I don't realize how fast it's gone, because we just live every day, one day at a time. And so we need to renew our vows frequently to one another. You know what? Just enjoying them one day at a time. Because the reality of it is, that's all we're going to get. God says, why are you anxious for tomorrow? Each day has enough trouble of its own. Why are you worrying about what's going to take place a year from now, two or three or four years from now? Because today is the day of the Spirit. And guess what? You may not live any more than today. So I hate to waste my last day here with my wife if today's the last day I'm going to be here. Not enjoying our relationship with one another. Think about how that would change every way that we think about each other. If today was the last day that you had here on earth to spend with your spouse, what would you do differently? Oh, that's why I'm bringing this up. You're not going to go into debt because you've got to reevaluate your attitude with regards to money. Number 13. 1 Timothy 6, 7-10 says, Hey, you know, if we've got food and clothing, we need to be content with these things. Too many marriages are falling apart because of financial difficulties. We went into great detail. Honor the Lord first, stay out of debt, be content, uh, live by a budget, save money for the future. Oh, and here's the game plan, so you know. Now listen to me carefully. The next two weeks are mission Sundays. Roger's got uh, missionary speakers lined up for the next two Sundays. The following Sunday, which is three weeks from now, we'll start a new series, a, a verse-by-verse book study of the book of Philippians. Okay. Then what I want to do in the summertime, because we had so many people sign up for the finance course. We had over, over 130 people, whatever, that wanted to do some things. We'll do a, uh, like maybe an eight-week finance course in the summer. And it gives us a break from all this stuff. Because I'll tell you what, if you're doing the stuff that you're supposed to be doing in your marriage, you're tired. And the last thing you need right now is, are oh, you going to do eight weeks on finances? I'm gonna, I, I can't handle it. And so we'll have, a, we'll have a little break in between. But just so you know, that's what's coming up, all right? Number 14, reach out and serve others you want to change your marriage, you want to change your life, stop thinking about yourself. Stop thinking about how your needs aren't being met. Stop thinking about how somebody should be doing more for you. Stop thinking about me, 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 and start thinking about other people first. Start serving and ministering to other people. Hebrews 10, 24, and 25 says, let us consider how we may spur one another towards love and good deeds. I like that. We get together and say, hey, what can we be doing for other people? And to spur one another on, to encourage one another, to do things for other people. A love that desires to be pleased will never be pleased. A love that desires to always receive will never receive enough. But a love that desires to give will always receive in return. It's just a paradox of life. It's just the way God does things. When you're giving to other people, your needs are being met. I've seen more people get involved in the lives of others to help them out, and by helping them out, their lives have been changed by it. It's incredible. Reach out and serve others. And number 15, and we did get through it a little bit late, but anyway, here we go. Number 15, recognize that tomorrow's problems start today. I love this passage of the Bible because I read it, and I realize how stubborn some of us can be. But listen to this in Exodus 8, 9, and 10. It says this, Moses said to Pharaoh, I leave to you the honor of setting the time for me to pray for you and your officials and your people that you and your houses may be rid of the frogs. God cursed the people of Egypt with a plague of, flo- of frogs. Moses went to Pharaoh and said, Listen, I'll leave it up to you. When would you like me to pray for you? And when I pray for you, God will get rid of all the frogs. There's frogs everywhere. They're all over the place. They're slimy little things. And this is what he said. Um, tomorrow you can pray for me tomorrow but tonight I'm going to sleep with the frogs <laughs> think about this this is amazing to me the guy went to bed and he opened and pulled down the sheets and there's frogs in the bed he stuck his head on the pillow and he hit a frog he stuck his hand under the pillow and there was another frog he got up in the night to go to the bathroom and he stepped on frogs as he walked to the bathroom he lifted the seat and a frog jumped up and hit him I mean, there were frogs everywhere. He was slipping and sliding. He probably fell fifteen times into the, the bathroom. I mean, then he's got frog guts all over him. Ah! Oh, he got frog guts all over him. He got a frog eyeball laying over there. There's frog foot over there. There's frog legs everywhere. I mean, there's frogs everywhere. And he had a choice: Do you want to live with the frogs, or I can pray for you now. Can I just please make some type of a crossover to us? <laughs> I meet so many people whose lives are so miserable, whose marriages, they, they're, just, they're just so frustrated and they're just so disgusted with one another. And God gives us all these wonderful truths, all these principles to apply that will change your life and bring joy to your life and joy to your marriage and will revolutionize everything that's going on. And some of you, I'll get around to it tomorrow. I know my wife's mad at me today, but I want to sleep with the frogs. What in the world are you thinking I just want to smack people. I meet mean with guys the same old song. I've been hearing it now. Some of you have been around 12 years. I've been teaching this class. I've been hearing the same stuff for years. And I just want to smack you. But God's love is patient. So I can. not I want to. But, but I, I just kind of go. What are you waiting for tomorrow? Don't you recognize that tomorrow's problems start today? Don't you understand what God's been trying to do? We've got all these wonderful truths, all these principles, this 15-point marital maintenance program. When are you going to start to apply them to your life? We get so frustrated. We have a baseball coach for our kids at high school this year. And and I can just see it. This guy goes out and he practices all these things, these fundamentals. He practices, practices, practices. And then the kids get in the game and it's like they never saw any of the stuff. They bunt for three hours at a practice. The next day they get in the game and it's time to bunt. And what do they do? I I don't bunt. And the guy just goes like, what in the world? Don't you see what you're supposed to do? You're supposed to apply this stuff to a game situation. Oh, kids go to school, they study all this stuff, and they don't apply anything to their life. Oh, I thought that was just so I could pass a test. What? It's for learning to apply to living. Please, people, please, apply this to your life. Some of you want this series to end because you're tired of applying it. You're missing the point. We'll have to do a series again. And I'm too tired. So please, what you learn, apply it. And when you apply it and your life changes, praise God. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for wanting to help us. Thank you for trying to help us. Thank you for doing everything that you could possibly do to help us. You've forgiven us, those who have accepted Christ. You've given us your spirit to convict us and understand what's right and wrong, that gives us—he gives us the power to be able to live this. You've given us your word that you say is living and active and sharper than any two hundred sword. And it's able to judge our thoughts and our intentions. It cuts through all of the smoke and mirrors. It gets right to where we're at. God, help us to understand that you know what—the only good intention is one that's carried out, and all the rest are nothing but lies aimed at buying time to continue to do what we want to do. God, help us to see it. Help us to apply these things. And as our lives are changed because of it, and as we receive joy in the midst of all of it, may we just praise and thank you. In Christ's name, amen.